Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. Just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to empower big, important ideas, as well as provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. We are really excited today to welcome Brian Selter to SALT Talks. Uh, Brian is the anchor of Reliable Sources, which examines the week's top media stories every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern on CNN, as well as the chief media correspondent for CNN Worldwide. Prior to joining CNN in November of 2013, Selter was a media reporter at the New York Times, where he covered television and digital media for the Business Day and Arts section of the newspaper. He was also a lead contributor to the Media Decoder blog. Selter published the New York Times bestselling book, Top of the Morning, Inside the Cutthroat World of Morning TV, about the competitive world of morning news shows. He is a consultant on Apple's drama, The Morning Show, which is inspired by this book. He was featured in the 2011 documentary, Page One, Inside the New York Times, directed by Andrew Rossi. He was also named to Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 Media for three consecutive years. If you have any questions for Brian during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now I'll turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, who's a founder and managing partner of Skybridge, as well as the chairman of SALT, to conduct today's interview. So, so Brian, I did, I, that's one of the things I didn't know about your resume, the 30 under 30. I've been submitting an application for 30 under 30 for the last 30 years to no avail. So we can talk about that at another time. But I have, I have to tell you, because I've lived a portion of this book, and obviously I was in and out of the Trump administration, spent nine, nine months on the campaign. Yeah. Full disclosure was a paid uh, presenter on the Fox News channel where I was right. the host of uh, That's in the Wall book. Week. That's right. And, and I got to tell you, I loved reading the book. Uh, it was uh, very clarifying to me. We're going to get into the book in a second. But for those of us that are getting to know Brian Stelter away from the television, away from reliable sources, <laughs> and you're reporting on CNN, tell us something about yourself that we couldn't find on a Wikipedia page. Uh, how'd you grow up? Why'd hmm. you get into this? Where, where, uh, why did you hmm. take this arc? Uh, in terms of a career? Well, I've always been a news junkie, uh, but that's probably on Wikipedia. So I'm thinking of something that's not on Wikipedia. I'm also a, a big weather junkie, a big weather nerd. Um, I was just talking about this with my wife, Jamie, the other day, because uh, when Hurricane um, uh, Sally was coming ashore, there's a part of me that wants to go out and be that correspondent that's getting blown around in the wind and the rain. And I, I did do it once uh, before. I was, on the, I was on the Weather Channel once doing this. Uh, and I was, I was re-watching the video recently and showing it to my daughter and saying, Daddy wants to go do that someday, um, which, which just speaks to my obsession with news and my love for news. You know, I want to be wherever that story is. And when it comes to, to Fox News, they've got great hurricane correspondents. They've got great people who go out and stand in the storm and tell you what's going on, just like CNN does. But at one of the problems, one of the differences with Fox is that they don't value and respect the news division the way that CNN does. Um, you know, so that's one of the many reasons I think uh, that I was interested in, in writing about Fox is that how the place has changed. But uh, look, whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever channel, I, I think it'd be fun to go out and do that someday. I guess that's something people don't know about me. I'm a big weather junkie, big big weather nerd. Um, and, and in general, just like obsessed with how the news works and doesn't work, right? And you, you probably know better than I that 
what is written, what is, what is perceived, what is covered on air. It's not always reflective of what's really going on. And that's a challenge for us in the media to try to get it right, be more careful, more right, and get to the truth every day. So, so, I mean, this, I mean, I'm gonna hold the book up for everybody. (laughs) The book is called Hoax. It's a international bestseller, and it is a riveting account of what is going on at Fox, but also an account of what's going on in the age of mass information. So I wanna wanna ask you something intellectually first, then we'll talk a little bit about the book. I would have thought with the proliferation of blogging, social Mm -hmm. media, the proliferation of media itself, we would have had more accuracy in the facts. Man, did I get that wrong. Uh, We have way more distortion of the facts, way more, you know, real fake videos, way more, you know, I don't like calling it fake news, but you get the point that there's a distortion happening. There's almost like a prism that depending on where you're coming from and what segment of the population you're coming from, you're seeing the news through that distorted prism. Can you explain sociologically or from a commercial perspective why you think that evolved in this era? Well, certainly the internet changed everything. The internet enabled all of us to be our own publishers. It allowed me to create a blog and then get hired by the New York Times and then get hired by CNN. So there's these incredible benefits from having this healthier, more diverse media ecosystem. Um, however, you know the algorithms and the, the uh, other tools that we use to, to to navigate and get through this uh, internet universe are primed to encourage sensational, crazy, uh, outrageous content. And we see more and more bad faith actors playing to those extremes, especially on the right, especially you know in, in this narrative that Trump is always right and everything else is, is fake, all the news is fake, or it could be a hoax. Um, you know, and, and that's part, so I say it's partly gained by algorithms, but it's partly about human desires to hear a a simple, um, consistent narrative or story, right? I think what Trump and his media allies do is they tell a pretty pretty, uh, powerful story over and over again, although it has a lot of holes in it and doesn't really add up. It's a story about the deep state. It's a story about, um, you know, uh, white victimhood, about grievance politics, about up the world all against Trump. And this is a story that Fox tells every day, and it's a really compelling story. Uh, although it doesn't really add up. And by telling that story, they are excusing so many of the president's errors and mistakes and misrepresentations, and they are defending the indefensible. You know, when the president retweets someone saying that Joe Biden's a pedophile, that should be called out by all good people. Uh, and yet it's not because we're in these alternative universes and so tribal. And, and I do think the internet has a lot to do with that uh, increased polarization. So the subtitle of your book is The Dangerous Distortion of the Truth. Uh, And uh, you write in the book, and I don't want to give the book away. The book is such a powerful read. uh, And I don't need to demonstrate to you that I've read the book. We can have that conversation. You already did, actually. But I I just have to tell you that uh, it's a phenomenal book. And I don't want to give it away because I want people to read it. But we both know that the Fox News organization, yeah. Trump was a President Trump himself was a fan of it. He was showing up frequently on uh, the morning show, Fox right. and Friends. But it was not necessary that the suits, the executives at Fox, were fans of Donald Trump in the beginning. So tell us a little right. bit about that part of the story. Yeah, I do think you have to go back five years in order to understand what Fox is today and what the pro-Trump media universe is today. You have to understand five years ago. Fox is now the beating heart of the pro-Trump media world. 
uh, Fox is like, it put, pumps out blood that goes all throughout the body, you know, and, and influences the Breitbarts and the Daily Callers and influences the president. It's like the beating heart. But it was not always that way. In 2015, Rupert Murdoch was deeply critical of uh, Donald Trump, said, when is he going to stop embarrassing his friends in the entire world? Uh, Roger Ailes was skeptical of Trump. He, he saw Trump was a great uh, television performer, but Ailes kind of wanted Jeb Bush. He was a Bush guy in the beginning. So there was this um, dissent or this skepticism about Trump, but there was also this uh, sense early on that the Fox audience was pulling for Trump, that the Fox base was Trump's base, that there was this um, uh, alliance of sorts or this you know, overlap of sorts. And there was this fear of ticking off the Trump-Fox base and having those viewers start to, 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 to uh, go elsewhere. So there's been this kind of Trump takeover of Fox that didn't happen overnight, didn't happen right away, didn't happen all in one fell swoop, but it happened. And it happened because it's what the audience wanted. It's because of the lack of clear leadership after Ailes was forced out. It's because that's what the commercial incentives were, the commercial imperatives were. Um, it's incredibly profitable to be the nation's pro-Trump network. Uh, it is also uh, incredibly misleading sometimes. And it was dangerous when the pandemic started, when the channel was downplaying the virus. So, you know, I think those, those commercial incentives are really critical to the story about why the network gradually came under Trump's spell. Well, Do you I mean, I, but that, you were there at the time. Am I getting that right? I mean, you were there. No, I, well, I, you know, I, I, I think you're getting it right, but I'm going to, I'm going to make it admission now, which doesn't reflect well on me. I think what happens is you're in that echo chamber and you're in the ecosystem and you're not fully picking up the reality distortion until you leave the echo chamber in oh. the ecosystem. And, mm. and, uh, and that's why I said to you, and I'm going to give it away now, uh, <laughs> of all the sentences in this book, oh. on page 121, yeah. uh, the sentence, which is quintessential, and it really resonated with me, Brian. <laughs> it, says, uh, it says here on the bottom of the page, it says, yeah. Carl Cameron just couldn't take it anymore. And I think that that is a resonance of what's going on as it relates to President Trump, as what's yeah. going on as it relates to Fox News and what's going yeah. on in the society right now. It's not clear to me that the society wants to be this divided. And since you talk about it, mm, I'll address it right. here. Ro Roger Ailes had this unstinting message. He grew up in Warren, Ohio. He has this hagiography of America. This is the happy days America right, of right. Arthur Fonzarelli and Richie Cunningham and it's a Midwestern America, and he wanted to sort of reclaim that uh, for America. Uh, and there's a, there's a tribal perspective of that because you know the, the, the great irony is you're shooting the light through that prism and you're shooting it on the wall and you're presenting an America, frankly, that never existed. That Richie Cunningham, Arthur Fonzarelli America, uh, you were just getting African-American athletes on the sports field in the 1950s, mm. right? Jackie Robinson was 1947. And you still had people separated in school systems and being discriminated at a lunch counter. So it's a, it's an, America is always a nation in progress with tremendous flaws, but there's Roger Ailes in an effort whitewashing, if you will, I think that's appropriate term, pun intended, <laughs> whitewashing right, right. the society. And so let's go mm. back to the Iraq war. Now, Fox News mm. had a big role in the Iraq war, did it not, Brian? Yes, I think it did. I think Fox was, in, in, post 9-11, Fox became the number one cable news channel. Uh, Ailes was secretly sending, uh, you know, advice to the Bush White House and uh, provided, you know, cover from the right flank 
you know, especially as the, the invasion, uh, post-invasion, as the occupation, uh, you know, uh, came into, you know, obviously serious trouble, you know, the, the cheerleaders like Sean Hannity were critical to maintaining some support for the Bush presidency and for explaining away the lies and misinformation uh, about the Iraq war. But compared to today, that version of Fox is so much more moderate. Um, you know, I, I think every turn Fox takes is a right-wing turn over the years, over the 24 years it's been on the air. And I try to document that in the book. You know, take, for example, during the Obama years, Roger Ailes was a birther. He believed, Ail, uh, he believed Obama was, was born in Africa, but he didn't let his talent go off and go full birther. Um, he did let Trump call in and say those things, but he didn't, you know, he didn't want Bill O'Reilly out there or out there pushing the birther smear. He wanted his talent to be um, as, you know, to be seen as fair and balanced, right? To at least be seen as somewhat moderate and not be compared to QAnon or Alex Jones. And so I think that's what's missing now. There's that kind of lack of, um, the, the, the channel's more extreme now in terms of the content than it was in the Ailes years for a variety of reasons, but that's one of the reasons because Ailes was trying to keep some level or some measure of control. Um, and I think that's, that's important in the context of Trump because Trump was able to take kind of kind of take power, not literally at Fox, but metaphorically at Fox. But here we are today. President Trump is now starting to turn a little bit on Fox. He refuses uh, to bend to its polling data. He's always every time they throw up a polling data that he doesn't like the narrative of, he goes bazonkazoid on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, my question to you is. Uh, is he turning on Fox? Is it just a few pundits now? Has Fox turned on President Trump? Some of the yeah. punditry there? Uh, I think it's a tug of war between news and propaganda. And the propaganda side usually wins. There's more of an audience for the talk shows. There's more um, electricity around the shows. Uh, but occasionally, Trump will see the newscasts, he'll see the news anchors, and he'll get ticked off. And he lashes out about the news coverage because he doesn't want news on Fox. He only wants propaganda. So I think when we see him uh, tweeting anti-Fox things, he's working the refs, same way he did in 2016, trying to have less news, more propaganda, he's trying, to, trying to downplay the Fox polling unit, which is really well respected, and promote the talk shows instead. You know, I think it's that tactic that is kind of tired, but it's still, um, it's still trying to register with some of his fans. Is it, is it working, the though? Has it, has, it co-opted the, has it co-opted the editorial content of Fox? Has what co-opted? Um, I, I think, I think people, are, people are very aware of it at Fox. I mean, the, the real reason why I wrote Hoax is because I was hearing from so many sources at Fox who were frustrated by the network and what's happened and how Trump feels like he's in charge or how he's hijacked the, the network in some ways. And, and what a lot of those staffers said was um, the incentive structures are all wrong. You know, so if, if you're a news anchor or a correspondent at Fox and you just want to report the news, uh, and a lot of times the news is about Trump's chaos and, and scandals and controversies, um, you feel you can't do that. You feel pressure. You, you feel powerless is really the word. You feel powerless to do that. Um, the news feels suffocated at Fox and the propaganda feels promoted. And there's some really specific examples of that. Carl Cameron, who's on the record in the book, talking about how, you know, the, the newscast didn't really want packages. They didn't really want reports. They'd rather just have conversations with panels. And by the way, I mean, Fox is not the only network where that's true sometimes, but it's very true at Fox, according to Cameron. Um, I have other correspondents in the book who said, you know, they all had their I can't take it anymore moments where, 
you know, they don't want to be on there defending child separations. They don't want to be on there defending Trump's comments about Charlottesville. So these different people at Fox had these breaking points. And the ones who stayed, you know, either they, they agree with everything that's happening or they fear they can't find a job elsewhere or they want to make the place better from the inside. So there's all these incentives for staying as well. So have you, have you ever uh, thought about working at Fox in your illustrious career? Has that ever come up? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think they would, they would be interested in me. Um, uh, but, but let me put it this way. I think anybody at Fox who, if you could have an hour um, that's devoted to fact-checking and debunking a lot of the nonsense that's in prime time, like, you know, I, I turn on Fox and Friends and most mornings the narrative is like this. The cities, there's violence in the cities. And of course, that, that's true. There, you know, crime is up in some areas, including in New York City. Um, but the way it's presented, it makes it sound like New York City is a hellhole. It makes right. it sound like Portland, all, all of Portland's on fire. It makes it sound like all of Seattle's a disaster area. And that narrative, that's damaging. That hurts New York City. It hurts Portland. It hurts the people in these cities. And, you know, if I had an hour where I could push back on all that, it'd be hard to turn that down. But I don't think they're calling offering that. I don't think there's interest in that. No, Shep no, Smith no, was trying to do it and Shep left. Yeah, no, no. And I got that. Shep's over at CNBC and I think it's a good home for him. I, I, I guess the reason I'm asking you that is because uh, the, again, this is just my opinion. I think there's a civil, I think there's a civil war going on inside of Fox. You, 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 you definitely yeah. talk about it in the, yeah. there, there's a civil war between the facts, the fact checkers, responsible journalism and full-on political punditry uh, that literally they're like mental gymnastics at night trying to explain what <laughs> President Trump is doing. I've told people, right. I'm, I'm watching right. them 8 to 11 o'clock at night. They're telling me that Trump's playing four-dimensional chess. He's sitting at the table eating the chess pieces. So I don't understand how they can get away with that. And since you mentioned Sean Hannity, I want to bring him up. And full disclosure, I'm friends with Sean. I've known Sean a long time. Although we haven't talked recently because, you know, I'm on one side of the ideas, subjectively, in my opinion, about Donald Trump, and he's on another side of the ideas in his mind, objectively, mm -hmm. about Donald Trump. So we've chose to agree to keep our friendship and not get invite, you know, not get into the political jousting. But right. you have a fascinating relationship with Sean Hannity, uh, and you talk about it in the book, which I find yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So, so I felt like I needed to disclose it a little bit. Talk, yeah. I so, felt so like I needed to explain to in the book that, you know, I, I've been covering Fox for 16 years and I know these players, you know, Hannity was, um, was really friendly to me as I was getting, growing up in this business. When I was at the New York Times, he gave me great advice when I joined CNN. I, I, I would say we were still, um, I would say that was a, a friendly relationship until the Trump presidency, you know, until 2017. It's one of many, I'm sure everybody on this uh, Zoom session has an example of a friendship or a relationship that's been strained or ruined by the Trump presidency. And that's true for me with, with folks at Fox. Tucker Carlson's another example. He was a big supporter of my blog. He put me on TV when he had a show on MSNBC. We had a relationship over the years. You know, now he's on TV calling me a eunuch. And it's like, what, hap what happened, Tucker? I, didn't, I don't think I've changed. I think you changed. I think you changed based on your audience's demands. You're trying to feed this increasingly radicalized audience. Um, and that's the uncomfortable part about a lot of this. I'm not saying every Fox viewer is radical. They clearly are not. Fox has a big audience and there's lots of different kinds of people that watch. But there's a base 
that doesn't want to hear the reality of what's happening in the Trump White House. Um, so, and these hosts feel pressure to serve that base. And I think it, maybe it's not possible to still have a friendly relationship with these guys when they feel those pressures. Well, I mean, one of the problems is, and I'm going to editorialize, get, get myself Good. in trouble, probably half <laughs> of our salt talk participants. But if you're into full-blown demagoguery, you've got to go 13 for 10 for the demagogue. If you go seven oh. for eight for the demagogue, you're called an unstable nut job on Twitter. I mean, you know, you've been called some tough <laughs> names. I, I got called an unstable nut job unstable by the president of the United job. States. I mean, I wear it like a badge of honor, but I'm just saying <laughs> my point being is that they're literally being watched by him. They're playing to an audience of one. Yeah. Uh, Bill Barr is playing to an audience of one. He's comparing slavery to the uh, uh, closures and lockdowns during a, yeah. a pandemic. I don't know. I don't think that's appropriate, but I'm sure the president liked it. And so that's that's the cycle. That's the dilemma that we're in. You do a great job of describing that as well. Thanks. Uh, you say something interesting about the president. I want you to react to this. You say mm. that uh, he's not going to be confused as a great orator, but his simplified style of communication is resonating. So, so what do you think makes him effective as a communicator and a politician? Describe for our listeners uh, the essence of uh, how he became this successful. Well, I think we have to appreciate the, the, what does work and, and learn from it. And I'm surprised that more candidates haven't learned from what uh, some of Trump's techniques, um, you know, his ability to tell stories, uh, usually this version of the same story at every rally, but, you know, it's a storytelling mechanism. It's um, a, you know, an attempt to, to, uh, to bring people to his side by have, involving them in his stories. It's obviously the repetition of certain simple slogans over and over again. We all know that with Bill Wall. That's obvious. Um, but, I, you know, I think we, you know, you've got to, I think where I sometimes think I've fallen down on the job is not try to meet people where they are and say, you know, I see what's appealing. I see some of the reasons why uh, either Trump's appealing or a Democratic candidate's appealing. Like, I see it. Let me meet you halfway and then talk about it. Same with Fox. I see what's playing about Fox and the way it's produced and uh, the, the topic selection, the, the, the choice of narrative. Like I, as a viewer, I get it. I watch a lot of it. I understand why it's appealing. Let me meet you halfway and then let's talk about why it's, um, it's discouraging that they misinform Trump and then he misinforms the country and why that's a bad thing, but that I can see the appeal of the show. You know, it's almost, um, you know, Trump leads a hate movement against the media. And I'm not saying we need a love movement, but you know, we might, we might need something, something like that that gets us a little more connected to our common humanity. Uh, is that, is that way, that's, a, that's way too fantastical, isn't it, Anthony? <laughs> so, you know, unless, unless something crazy happens to the institutions of our democracy, the Trump era is going to end in a hundred days or it's going to end in four years plus a hundred days. And so what happens uh, to the, Trump acolytes and what happens to the future of Fox News in a post-Trump world? It's a big question, and it's it's being it's being debated inside Fox. You know, will he launch his own network? Will he, uh, you know, will he try to try to rival Fox? I think the answer is no. I don't think I, I think that's a lot harder to do than people appreciate. Um, but I wonder if he'll be on the radio. I wonder if he'll want a radio show. If he, if he loses the election. I wonder if he'll want to show on Fox. Um, I wonder how much audience there would be for someone who's branded a loser after a, having a winning brand for decades. Um, I think Fox will be just fine in any of those scenarios because the channel is more anti-Democrat than it is pro-Trump. Um, it's more anti-Biden than it is pro-Trump. 
But I saw Leon in the, in the Q&A said, you know, is Fox afraid if he loses, he'll start a competing network. I don't know if people are afraid, but there's definitely some concern about it. People talk about it as a possibility. They wonder if it would happen. And certainly folks close to the Murdochs have talked about this and gamed out those scenarios too. So why don't we do that? Let's go to some of the Q&A, Joe. I, we've got a lot of questions populating. Some of these are quite interesting. Uh, Absolutely do. This is yep. a very active Q&A, which is what we had expected. So this is great. I was just uh, peeking over there. That's why I brought yeah, up. Yeah, no, I love, I love it. <laughs> that, 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 that keeps bringing them back, Brian. Okay, the fact that we answer all their questions when they come on. Something that, let me start with, I want to go back to, to social media, um, is fake news, alternative facts, and what that social media is now checking some of Trump's tweets, is branding things as distorted media. What role in, in propagating fake news and, and stories such like uh, Joe Biden playing Despacito, but it put them putting on a different song, <laughs> right. people not really checking, what role does that have in creating and forwarding this narrative that a, a let's say, a regular viewer of Fox News or maybe OAN has about the president and what he's doing? Yeah, OAN makes Fox look like ABC. OAN is much further to the right, but also much, much, much lower rated. Fox has an incredible monopoly on the right wing audience. Newsmax, OAN, they try, but they just can't come close. Um, you know, I think Twitter and Facebook are taking these baby steps and it, it, maybe it looks like they're taking big gigantic steps, but they're really just baby steps uh, in terms of how much misinformation and, and, and bull is out there. Uh, but by taking these baby steps, they can be held accountable because we can point to their actions and say, you did this for X, why haven't you done that for Y? So it's useful, I think, when we see these companies taking action because it gives us a baseline to compare it with and to, to judge in the future. Um, I personally think these labels they're putting on Trump's tweets are kind of a joke. Uh, the, Trump will tweet mail-in ballots are fraud, don't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And then the label will say something like, get the facts about mail-in ballots. And you, you, can't, you can't fight fire with that kind of ice. It just doesn't, like that, that I, don't, I don't think that works, but Again, they are taking steps. That's a lot more than they were doing in 2016. You know, I remember saying fake news on TV for the first time in like October 2016 because there were these actually fake stories. That's the, the term before Trump used it was a term for actually fake stories that were all over Facebook, making up smears about Clinton. And uh, gosh, I kind of wish I hadn't said the term because by December of that year, Trump hijacked it. Absolutely. So I, going off of that, I mean, do you think once Trump leaves office, whether it's in 100 days or four years and 100 days, as Anthony said, how do you restore the standard of truth in American society, or at least the, the news media, um, or is the horse out of the barn and we're just in a place where people are going to accept multiple different routes of getting to, you know, the same fact? Yeah. Uh, look, I think, a, I think a, a diverse media ecosystem is a good thing. So having lots of sites and lots of sources and lots of options is good. It's when some of those sites are um, total rubbish, they are garbage, they are disinformation trying to hurt the American people, that's where we have a problem. And uh, you know, QAnon gets thrown around as an example of this, but there are lower level examples of this as well, where um, you know, there's just a lot of low quality information out there. And on your Facebook feed, it looks like it's the same quality as CNN or the New York Times. And that's a, a fundamental problem. I wish Fox would strengthen its news operation so there was more high quality information coming from a trusted right-wing source. Uh, but, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. I think to answer the question more directly, most Americans see through the fog. Most Americans see through the distortions. 
There is, though, this minority of the country that's so distrusting of institutions and distrusting of news outlets and, and all that, they seem to only put their trust in Trump and Trump, Trump's allied media outlets. And that doesn't go away when, when, when Trump leaves office uh, in January or in January of 2025. That doesn't go away. And I don't have great answers for what that audience looks to next or what that audience does or what they gravitate toward. But I think all of us individually have a little bit of a role to play. The people in our lives who think Joe Biden's a pedophile or feel good saying that on their social media pages, the people in our lives who, who align with crazy concepts like that, and, and not, not really crazy, hateful. It's really about hate, right? T saying that about Joe Biden's really about hate. It's about, it's about fear and hate of the other side. Um, I think we have to figure out how to talk to those individuals in our lives who feel that way and figure out how to pull them toward higher quality sources. It's not about pulling them toward left-wing left -wing sources. It's about pulling them toward higher quality sources of news um, that come from the right or the left or everywhere else. Absolutely. So uh, another question about a sort of, you know, the, in the anchor's role or the, the reporter's role, you know, how are you able, a book, you're able to be subjective, you're able to put in your own um, thoughts about the, the current occupant of the White House. But when you get on CNN, you need to be impartial. You need to be presenting facts and there can be a, somewhat of an editorial nature, but it's mostly here are the facts, you do with them what you will. How do you balance that? How do you see, I mean, I guess we were talking about other anchors that we don't need to, to refer to again, but how do you balance that desire to show people what you see as the truth and presenting facts and wondering what people are gonna do with, with those facts after they turn off the television? Yeah. Uh you know, I, I think what we what, what I do on CNN, I'm, it's, uh, I, you know, there's different labels for it. What I would say is trying to trying to um, to tell the truth, sometimes with a point of view, and that point of view is what's reliable, what's believable, what's factual, and how can we cut through all the noise and get to the news. And that sometimes comes in the form of these monologues that lots of CNN anchors are doing, where, you know, you try to um, to say, hey, here's what the president said, here's the reality, Here's the contradiction. Here's the clip, you know, and like string it along in the form of an essay or a monologue. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of those on, on TV. And sometimes I hear from viewers who say it's, it's, it's opinion. And I say, it's not opinion. It's not based on feelings. And, and we're not pushing to uh, endorse a policy. This isn't about the earned income tax credit or about, you know, abortion rights. We're not lobbying for policy positions. We're just talking about decency and truth and democracy. And that I think is perfectly fair for news outlets uh, to speak about and push for, you know, push for truth and honesty in, in politics. Um, that's not partisan. So I think that's, that's what we, we should be doing and we will keep doing is pushing for that. Absolutely. So we actually had a question come in from someone who was a previous Salt Talk guest, um, piggybacking off of this. So if you launched your own Brian Seltzer news organization, whatever we're gonna call it, <laughs> <laughs> How would you combat the current dangers of information, lies, propaganda? Would you have a segment like that where you start off with, with a monologue or what would that look like for you? Right. Depends on the medium, I suppose, if it's online or on TV or elsewhere. I think, uh, what the, I think we should root this in what the audience wants. The question you'd ask is, what does the audience want and need? Um, I don't know about you all, but most people in my life don't know what the heck to believe. Uh, they, they see all sorts of smears and crazy things on the internet and they want to be guided toward reliable sources, aha, of, of information. So I, I think in, in, that, in that scenario, calling it like it is, is essential. Um, 
when the president has a, a great victory, we should call that what it is. Uh, but when he, when he lies about Joe Biden, we should call that what it is. Uh, maybe call it what it is is a good brand name for a news outlet. I don't know. Uh, but, but I think that kind of personal connection where you can call it out what it is, I think that's, that's appealing. That's what the, I think that's what the audience wants. And then the other thing I would say is provide primary source material. Provide the evidence so people can see it for themselves so that they're not believing me or believing anybody else. They're believing their own eyes. One of the worst things Trump's done is to try to get people not to believe their own eyes. He's told people that everything could be a hoax. And that's, that's done damage. It's going to take time to repair. But we can repair it by, by bringing people to their own, to, to their, to the own original data and see the, see the proof for themselves. Yeah, I remember that. It was very 1984 when that, that quote came up. <laughs> right. So uh, starting to COVID quickly, I know we're bumping up against time. Um, but so Fox followed largely the president's script and downplaying the seriousness of, of COVID-19, I guess, until the, the Woodward tapes came out. But pre-Woodward, um, we're pretty in, much in lockstep with yeah. uh with the president and what he was saying about the the pandemic um what are other examples of situations where uh the inability of the american people to trust the president and the most watched news outlet in the country could lead to major problems are there you know past examples of this or things that you see in, potentially in the future yeah the pandemic's you know, the, the strongest and in some cases the worst example because it's the most painful example it's a life and death example there's a lot of blame to go around for what went wrong in February and March. And I say that very clearly in the beginning of hoax. A lot of blame to go around with mayors and governors and others and other media outlets even. But Fox had the biggest cable platform and Trump had the biggest uh, presidential platform. And so by downplaying the pandemic, by making it seem political, not medical, that did real damage. Uh, I think there are other examples in the book from earlier in the Trump presidency of times when, you know, he gets misled by Fox and then he misleads leads the country and that hurts everybody. Uh, one example is, uh, you know, when we end up having a government shutdown driven largely by right wing media demanding Trump take a firmer stance on the border wall. Um, there's even, you know, if you look back in 2017, the seeds of the Ukraine scandal, which led Trump to be impeached, uh, are sown on Fox. They are kind of laid out in, 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 in Fox and then farmed years later. So there's been a bunch of these examples of times when Fox is trying to help Trump, but they're actually hurting Trump and uh, or, or by following his script and downplaying the pandemic. Uh, hurting their own viewers. And by the way, that's not coming from me. That's coming from staff inside Fox who said things like, what we did was hazardous to our viewers. What we did was dangerous. You know, these were like kind of whistleblowers inside who were saying this was went, this went really wrong. And that's why the book is called Hoax. We were going to call this wingmen because Trump has lots of wingmen at Fox. And uh, But when Trump and Hannity used the word hoax by decrying the Democrats politicization of the virus, uh, we named the book Hoax for that reason. You were dying to call it Wing Nuts, but your editor told you you couldn't call Actually, it Actually, you know, nuts, John right? Avlon wrote a book called Wing Nuts, and I couldn't <laughs> I do know, Wing Nuts. Wing, wing Men uh, is, is, is I remember what I think John. I remember John's book. And, and by the way, like if those Wing Men were giving him the highest quality information, giving him, challenging him with new perspectives, you know, uh, challenging his priors, like there wouldn't be a book to write. But right. because what happens is Fox and Friends puts up a banner that's full of crap, and the president reads it and then tweets it and then spreads it across the country. That's, that's really the heart of the problem, I think. So, so some, some of the questions that have come in, I'm tr trying to distill them because we are running out of time, but there's a, there's a few questions about CNN. And obviously sure. the, yeah. the, the right is critical of CNN. The president is critical of CNN. What do you say to the critics of CNN? 
you know, I say that I say that CNN has its flaws, and I like being called out for them, and I like when people email me. I'm at um, bstelter at gmail.com because I think it's good for you know to hear from viewers and hear their feedback and hear what we can do better. Um, but I, I just think there's something fundamentally different between what Fox does and what all other networks do. Um, and the, the differences include childish name calling, um, deflections and distortions from the biggest story of the day, you know, those sorts of tactics that I think, you know, what about, what aboutism on a grand scale, those sorts of tactics that um, they weren't always in play at Fox. They become more obvious these days and they distract from what's really important. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I think CNN's done a great job of putting up on screen the COVID uh, data, making sure COVID is front and center in the news. Fox covers the story a lot less. And you have to wonder if that's for political reasons or not. Um, but we certainly have our flaws. And, and I like when, we, when, we're, when we're held accountable for it. Um, you, know, let's, let's, you know, there's uh, some, somebody said, isn't there a sense that the same is true in the reverse for the left on CNN, that, that CNN and Fox are equal, they're mirrors of each other. That's what I just think doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Because when you look at what Chris Cuomo is doing in, in prime time, it is, it is clearly not the same as what Hannity is doing in terms of how reality-based it is. That's, that's the way I see it. Yeah, but and listen, I, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna defend Chris a little bit because I do his show. Yeah. He has a ton of uh, Trump acolytes on the show defending mm. the president and offering up the case for the president, including uh, people from the Trump campaign. So, right. Uh, right. It, you know, if you haven't noticed, Brian, not that you would notice this, I can very rarely get an invite on Fox News now. I don't. Those guys mm. don't want to have me on there. You know, I got on with Steve engage. Hilton. Hmm. Yeah, I got on there with Steve Hilton uh, uh, a few weeks back. We had a sparring match. Uh, the president didn't like it. He's tweeting about me. And that's the Michael Cohen axiom. Uh, what's that axiom? <laughs> if, you're, if you're saying something crystal clear, clarity and truth, and you're breaking down the president's reality distortion field, he's going to viciously ad hominem attack you on Twitter. That's, hmm. that's like one of the postulates of the, uh, the Trump era, if you will. Uh, but let's talk about... Hmm. Uh, before we let you go, let's talk about you being the news czar. Okay, so now we've appointed you to a new position. It's <laughs> okay. a supra-governmental position. It's a supra-media <laughs> position. You are the news czar, and you're trying to make the news more, let's use a Fox News term, fair and balanced. Really fair and balanced. Uh, what would you do? And I'm going to take you back to Ronald Reagan. You remember when he signed that legislation? to offer some equality on the radio mm. airwave, which mm -hmm. led to the advent of uh, conservative talk radio. Mm. What would you do if you were the new czar uh, and you wanted to figure out a way to strain out some of the uh, inaccuracies, the misinformation and stuff that's, uh, that's hurting the country right now? First, we would, we would invest enormously into local news and we would rebuild local newspapers and rebuild local sources of news because they are more trusted uh, they are more uh, important in the lives of everyday Americans uh, than, than anything else. Rebuild local news because that rebuilds people's trust with media. And, you know, when you know your local reporter, like I did growing up in Damascus, I knew Susan, she was the town's reporter. It makes you more trustworthy in media in general because you see how the person works and you see how they, they care about the community. And when they make mistakes, they clean up their act. Uh, I, I would say number two, uh, you know, you want the healthiest most diverse media ecosystem possible, but tethered to reality. Infowars, for example, is not tethered to reality. Alex Jones is on there in the past saying, I drink children's blood and I run the banks. 
that kind of insanity just confuses people and hurts people. And, you know, the tech companies did, did take action against InfoWars. That was the beginning of what we've seen now, these, these tech platforms trying to take action in really extreme cases of disinformation. Uh, but I think a new czar would, would try to figure out a more cohesive way um, to have the media world be as diverse as humanly possible, like make it as, as, as diverse as possible, but healthy, meaning um, tethered to reality in some way. So that if I were on CNN and I said something that were, was wholly inaccurate, um, you almost want like a red light to fire off or you want a bell to charm. Like you want to, you want to figure out ways <laughs> laugh, to signal to the audience. Track, and, or a laugh track. Yeah. You, you, you know, the, <laughs> there's got to be some way to like have that kind of checking. I don't know how you would do it, but if I'm the news czar, maybe I have magical powers. So maybe I can make it happen. Um, and, you know, that would be a form of accountability what I got frustrated by reporting in my book about Fox is doesn't there's a lot, a lot of accountability at Fox when mistakes are made. I know that there is at CNN. Maybe people think there's not enough, but um, I had a screw up over the summer in my newsletter and I had a call from my boss and we had a, you know, one of those like awkward, but really important conversations where I talked about what I did and how I, why I, I had a, this screw up and talked about why and how I'm going to avoid it in the future. And that makes me a better journalist. And if I was the news czar, I would try to make sure there were lots of those conversations happening all the time uh, so that people are held accountable. Well, listen, you, you're very generous with your time. You wrote an amazing book. I also want to recommend Top of the Thanks. Morning and The Morning Show because uh, I thought those were all intriguing about Thank that high-paced competition in morning television. <laughs> what is, yeah. Before we let you go, let you go, what is your next project, Brian? Are you able to talk about it or you don't have a project yet? <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm brainstorming what to do because I don't know how to top this book about Trump and Fox. If Biden wins and he makes America boring again, there's not going to be any books to write. Think about, there's all this interest in Trump. That well, now you Trump sound like Trump. Trump. Now you sound like President everything Trump. In the middle. He says, when I go, you guys are going to miss me, right? <laughs> I'm not going to miss him. I think the book publishing business you, but... is going to miss him. I'll say that. <laughs> but but I, I wish you great success. Project, I just you... want to make my Sunday show better. That's always my top priority. All right, so make, how make, do I make my make show the, as strong? Shun, as make the Sunday show better. Uh, I'm certain that that's <laughs> going to happen. I watch it every Sunday. It's on my DVR. Thanks. That's reliable sources at 11 a.m. on CNN and CNN International. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Stelter. But Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and Thank we'll you. Thanks, this, everybody. We'll have this up on our website and so forth. And I uh, uh, really yeah. enjoyed your book. Fantastic work. Awesome.